Well, good morning. You can go ahead and grab a seat. Let me add my welcome to you all. My name is Preston. I'm the associate pastor here at St. Peter's, and uh, it's great to see you all today. Um, we are in week two of a three-week series looking at the book of Habakkuk. And if you weren't here last week, I'll say just briefly again that we're studying Habakkuk with a very particular question that's related to another series we've been doing and will continue to do in September on the Sermon on the Mount. We've been going through Jesus' sermon in Matthew 5-7, to but we've paused that for the summer. And in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus gives us this beautiful vision of human flourishing, of what God's vision for the good life, the kingdom of God, looks like on earth. Yet we live in the in-between times. We have this vision and we have a taste of it, and we yearn for it, but we also live in the here and now, don't we? The kingdom of man that is oriented away from God and glorifies everything that isn't a part of the kingdom of God, that's moving in the other direction, that's where we live. So the question we've brought to Habakkuk is, how do we live in the in-between times? While we pray, as Jesus taught us, may thy kingdom come, and may thy will be done. Habakkuk lived in a dark time under a corrupt king who rejected God, and he lived in a nation that was on the brink of destruction by Babylon. There was little hope in Habakkuk's day. Few signs of faithfulness from God's people being lived out around him. Yet in his, yet in his prayer, in his conversation with God that is this book, he finds solid ground to stand on while praying his kingdom come prayer. And so that's what we're looking at. What does, he, what does he get at here for us that we can look at to have solid ground to stand on as we pray thy kingdom come? Last week we looked at chapter 1, where Habakkuk makes a righteous protest to God. He opens his heart boldly and honestly and, and engages God in a heart-wrenching conversation. He brings all of, all of his struggles um, to God openly in prayer and asks, why does evil abound amongst your people? And when will it end? God responds to it in chapter 1, and he says, I see it, and I will, I will do something about it. I will bring judgment by, by allowing Judah to be conquered by Babylon. And then Habakkuk responds back, and he said, this is a terrible idea. This is even worse. Why would you do that? Bad plan, God. How does this fit your character? I don't get it. What will you say to me now? And then he stands watch to see what God will do. So here's how the rest of the book fits together to give you a big picture. Um, so, so chapter 2 is God's answer back, which is what we'll look at today. And then chapter 3 is Habakkuk's final word, the last bit of the conversation. Today, we listen in on God's answer to Habakkuk. And our main idea is this. While awaiting the kingdom... We live in patient faith. While awaiting the kingdom, we live in patient faith. So let's start and jump in by reading verses 2 to 4, chapter 2, 2 to 4 again together. Uh, everything will be on the screen. There's also these gray Bibles that you can follow along with, with me. It's um, on page 667. So start, starting in verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. 
Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. So God has heard Habakkuk's complaint. And he says, look, I'm going to give you a vision. I'm going to give you a vision, and, and, that I, and I want you to write it on tablets so all of my people can see it. Tablets, stone tablets, big tablets, ones that last thousands of years, unlike the one that I'm reading off of today right now uh, that's, that's built for a seven-year self-destruct button. I have about a year left, so then it's all gone. This one lasts forever. It's, it's written thousands of years ago. It's amazing. It's much more durable than this garbage. No, these are the sorts of tablets that we can dig up today in scholars. I can't read this, but scholars can read words that were written millennia ago. God is saying this vision is not just for you, but for the people of God at all times. It will last. And also, it's crucial and urgent. It's a vision that is worth running to proclaim, to tell others about. It's a vision for today, for me, and for you. We're getting a sense that this vision is good news, groundbreaking news, gospel news even. It's the sort of news that changes everything. And it is. It is the sort of news that changes everything. It's the key to unlock how we live in the in-between times, for how we are Christians in this time while we pray thy kingdom come. Well, what is it? Is it the map to the fountain of youth? Is it the potion to unlock the secret of alchemy? Is it the answer to living my best life now? Well, God pauses, and he prepares Habakkuk for this vision. He preps him for it, for the vision like a wise, loving, patient father. And he gives him a word about time. So let's look at verses 2 to 3 again. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, and it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. There is longevity to this vision, and its fulfillment stretches all the way to the end. What end? He means the end. It hastens or thirsts for or longs for or yearns for the very end of time. In the biblical story in which we live, this draws us to the vision of the end in the book of Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is a grand, big picture vision we're given. Habakkuk, it will not lie. Why would God say that? Because much around you in your lifetime will tell you it's a lie. Habakkuk, it may seem slow, really slow, but wait for it, for it will be fulfilled. It will surely come on my watch, Habakkuk, it will come, it will not delay. The day after my son's third birthday party, he wanted to know when he could have another birthday party, because <laughs> they're awesome explaining to him that he would have another birthday party, but it would be a year from now. It was very disheartening to him because it goes totally beyond his comprehension and horizon of time. He can't get that. This is what it feels like to me to hear God speaking to Habakkuk here. The vision will be fulfilled. You will turn four. 
but it may seem slow. <laughs> it will surpass the horizon of time you are used to working in. It's going to require patience. The central content of this vision then comes in verse 4. It's not that Habakkuk or, or we have to wait to know what, what the vision's all about. God tells us immediately. The point is that the vision God gives Habakkuk for life as we await the kingdom is, is characterized by patience. In the vision, God presents Habakkuk with a choice between two paths. It's the same choice between two paths that God has given people at all times and all places, and that he gives, that he gives people over and over in Scripture. It's the choice for Adam and Eve in the garden to take the path of obedience to God's word or the path of disobedience, taking the knowledge of evil into their own hands, deciding justice for themselves. It was the same choice for Abraham, the path of trusting God when God promised Abraham he would be the father of many nations despite his old age, or the path of taking matters into his own hands, fixing the problem with a very human solution. And it's the same choice that Jesus gives his, his, his listeners, his disciples, as he finishes his great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, preaching to a crowd on the hillside beside the Sea of Galilee. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Well, in his time and in his place, God speaks to Habakkuk and gives him the same message. Verse 4, Behold, his soul, Babylon's soul, is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Babylon is proud, is arrogant, is puffed up. The soul of Babylon is not right. Babylon has taken the path of self-reliance, deciding justice for themselves, fixing problems with very human solutions. Babylon has taken the wide gate that leads to destruction, and many will follow, and they'll lead many down that path. But there is another path. There's another option. In the face of coming judgment, in the face of darkness, in a time of corruption and evil, God reminds Habakkuk, and he, and he reminds all of us, that there is another path. It's the path Adam and Eve and Abraham missed when they chose to take matters into their own hands. It's the path of obedience and trusting reliance on God. It's the path of placing our insolvable problems in the hands of God. It's the path of placing ourselves, our whole selves, our whole lives, our heart, mind, soul, and strength in the hands of a loving God. It's a path that demands patience. It's the path of faith, in a word. It's how we wait for the kingdom. It's how we live in the in-between times. We live by faith. It seems oversimplified, but that's it. It's more real and life-giving than we can actually imagine than the fountain of youth or the alchemist's secret would actually give us. Both of those actually lead to death and destruction. The path to abundant life is faith. It's falling into the arms of a God who is eternally faithful and who is always there with his arms wide open. Faith, Christian faith, is about allegiance. It's about surrendering our flag, 
giving it up and saying, guess what? My life is no longer about me. I am all yours, God. I am all yours, Jesus. And now I'm going to live and fly the flag of the kingdom of God, not my own. Now, at this point, there's so much that could be said about faith. Faith is the central marker of the Christian life. We could go a million directions talking about faith. And if you're new to, to, to Christianity, to faith, or exploring it and want to hear all about faith, well, we did a series on that in January on Ephesians 2, and I really encourage you to go listen to that. It's all about living by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Check that out. It's an exhilarating place to start if you need your faith refreshed or if you're exploring things. It's really good. But Habakkuk brings us to look at faith from one particular angle, and that's what we're going to do today. It's the angle of time. God tells us here that faith that will last, that will endure, is a patient faith. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Patient faith is what endures. But patience... Patience. Patience is in short supply among us, isn't it? If there's one fruit of the Spirit we struggle with in our time, I think it's patience. The King James Bible, some of you may know, translated patience differently. It, it, it was translated long-suffering, which really is a good translation, and it points to just how much we hate the idea. <laughs> long-suffering, that sounds horrific. You know, the fruit, of the, joy, the fruit of the Spirit sounds pretty good until you get to that part. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Yikes. Why is that on the list? Suffering is meant to be eradicated, right? Not endured. Yet anyone who lives a life of faith, or has attempted to at least, knows that faith that is not patient, that can't handle long-suffering, will die. So why is the thought of waiting patiently in faith so difficult for us? Why is it just anathema to us to think about this? I want to explore that a bit this morning and then look at what God points to in Habakkuk 2 for us to cultivate patient faith. Why is it so hard for us to find contentment in lives of patient faith? Why is it so hard? It is. And I'm not suggesting that the life of faith has ever been an easy one, no. But I am saying that the fruit of patience, the discipline of waiting on God's timing, is, I think, particularly difficult for us now, at this time and place, than ever before. And it's because we are people of the moment. We live for the now. The time horizon that most of us live in and operate with is incredibly narrow, narrower than people have ever lived with. Consider this with me for a minute. We don't wait for anything. We don't, and if we do, we hate it so much that we do, do whatever we can to avoid it by using our device to distract us. Because 30 seconds left to our own seems unbearable. What would we think about? Have you ever stood in line lately? Or waited for the bus or an elevator? Or waited the eight minutes for your pasta to cook and just sat there and waited? No, no, who has time for that? <laughs> Not me. But if our minds don't have capacity to wait 30 seconds for the elevator, what might this do to our ability to wait in faithful expectation on God? 
I mean, how can we expect to manage faithfully, patiently, between a prayer prayed, for example, and a prayer answered, without falling into relentless and anxiety and despair if we can't even wait 30 seconds for the elevator? So we have no context in our life for patience. It's not a virtue in our world. Because we live in the now, we are used to instant response. Have you ever texted someone and then waited a couple seconds and the little bubble with three dots didn't show up immediately? What did you feel? <laughs> Not patient. <laughs> Our horizons actually hem us in. Pope Francis went so far as to call us prisoners of the moment. Consider how ludicrous it seems for us to wait to the end of the day, for example, to talk to your spouse or your roommate. To wait for a week to get your pictures developed. Imagine how different our horizons might be if we had to plant seeds now for food that we'd eat in a year. Most of us would starve. And if you're like most people I know, if you meal plan for a week and actually follow it through without throwing away most of your produce, you're a visionary and a saint. It's crazy. Here's another example. Think about our building projects. From the 10th to the 11th century, Westminster Abbey was completed in 161 years in London. The Empire State Building in New York City was built in 410 days in the 1930s. And a recent Vancouver Sun article said that the average construction on a, on a single-family dwelling in Vancouver is now three days. That's a little exaggerated. <laughs> but it's pretty quick, and their average lifespan is not much longer. Yeah, I'm exaggerating, but, it's, but it gets to the point that it shows us uh, this isn't much of an exaggeration, and it shows us how ludicrous we consider the idea of working on a project like Westminster Abbey, for example, where there's no hope of seeing the finished work, not even a chance for the people who started and designed it and were laying the foundations. They were working on something that the horizon was well past their death, and they knew it. Who would give their lives to something like that now? We're prisoners to the moment, and we can't see out of our cell. Our restlessness and anxiety and our horrific ability to handle suffering, long-suffering, are evidence of our chains. Now, I'm trying to describe our moment to help us see why patient faith is so hard. That's what I'm doing. Much of it is the water in which we swim in. We can't change a lot of this. We can't step out of it. But by buying into this mindset wholeheartedly, by living the cliches that you know, living for the moment, or doing what feels good, or YOLO, you only live once, it not only severely hurts our ability to live faithfully with God, to live into abundant life, a patient faith, but it instead fills us with fear. Fear of what's next. Fear of the future. Fear of missing out. Right? The FOMO acronym is prophetically accurate. We get fear. In this mindset, we are indeed prisoners to the moment. We've lost any perspective of what God has done for us in the past to sustain us, to looking back to those things, and what, what God can do and will do in the future to pull us along in hope. We're stripped of our imagination of what, God, what could be in the kingdom of God, with horizons that penetrate time itself, because if it doesn't happen right now, today, then we're probably not going to stick around for it. This is our world. 
This is our lives. So how do we cultivate patient faith in this world? How do we endure? How do we fix our eyes on God and, co and commit ourselves to him in faith in this world of the now, of the moment? Well, the first thing to say is that patient faith is not uninvolved or disinterested faith. It's not sitting around waiting on God like you wait on the bus. Patient faith is living with intention and conviction in our day-to-day day -day lives and releasing the outcomes then to God. God gives Habakkuk a grim picture of Babylon in the remainder of chapter 2 and denounces the nation to judgment with five woes. Living with patient faith in this time and place, it means living in contrast to Babylon, to that vision of the kingdom of darkness that's painted in a lot of ways that's the opposite of the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount. Patient faith is living in contrast to it. Jeremiah's message to the exiles in Babylon, just after Habakkuk wrote, he helps us see what to do in this waiting time for the kingdom and how to live in contrast to exiles who are kind of waiting for God to show up and bring them back to their homeland, this is what Jer Jeremiah wrote to them. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find welfare. Expand your time horizons, people. Be present. That's what he's saying. In patient faith, be present. Dig in. Invest. Love deeply. Seek the welfare of the city. Don't just skip along the surface. Never allowing yourself to get close to anyone because you're always thinking about the next move. In a world of YOLO and FOMO, do something with substance that lasts more than a moment, that has depth. In a world that distracts and checks out with downtime, focus on God. Learn to pray. And this is where God ultimately leads Habakkuk in his response in chapter 2. Amidst an evil people who worship idols, what is the call to Habakkuk? Verses 18 to 20. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. When our horizons are shrunk to the moment, and we have no vision for our lives, a part of God's story of salvation, his grand vision, when all of our hope is what's in right in front of us today, then we start to give our attention and our hope and our hearts to lesser things to idols, that, do, that all they do is destroy us. What is the remedy? 
silence, God says. Soren Kierkegaard, in a scorching response to the same question, puts it like this. If I were a physician and someone asked me, what do you think should be done? I would answer, the first thing, the unconditional condition for anything to be done, consequently, the very first thing that must be done is create silence, bring about silence. God's word cannot be heard. And if in order to be heard in all the hullabaloo, it must be shouted deafeningly with noisy instruments, then it is not God's word. Create silence. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. We must resist the captivity to the present, to the now, with all we have. We have to resist it. And the best way to do it is stepping outside of its pressure to find fulfillment in this moment by keeping silent before the Lord in prayer. It's the action that pushes our horizons out and lifts our gaze forward past the immediate moment, which actually frees us to live in the now with true meaning and purpose, because we know we're a part of something bigger. We know we're a part of God's kingdom, so we can pursue today as a gift. It's not going to ever get easier to do this. I get this is difficult. I struggle with it. But we're only speeding up. Our culture is only speeding up. That's the direction it's going. And I can make all kinds of excuses now at this time and place for not slowing down, finding time for silence, and stillness before God. I tell myself I'll do it when I don't have small kids and when they're older and when life is easier to manage. But the truth is, it's never going to get easier for me or for you. And our restlessness our anxiety, our inability to deal with suffering. It's not going to get better. It's not going to go away without finding a space to rest and abide in silence before God in his holy temple. Can we imagine our lives at a different pace, a pace of patient faith, where we find ground to stand on by keeping silent before God and listening as a routine? I know it sounds crazy. Setting aside a day even each week, a Sabbath day to delight in God's goodness, that's one of the ways Christians have done it for many, many years. You can start more simply finding a rhythm of prayer. You could use 12-12 to take 60 seconds of silence and be still before God and just withdraw to be present with him. Or even challenging yourself to be still in the moments of the day that come and go. And listen, waiting in line, do we pull out our phone first or can we just even be still for a moment? Waiting for the bus, the email, the news, the Instagram feed, it will always be there. Always. And God will also always be there in his holy temple waiting and eagerly desiring to be present with you, to have your attention. So to whom? To whom will you give it? To whom will you give your attention? It's 
one of the most precious things you have. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, we come and ask for the help of your Holy Spirit in this endeavor to walk with you, to abide with you, to pull away as you did, Jesus, from the busyness of life and find a quiet place to pray. You showed us how important this was, even in your own life, even the Son of God. So will you help us, Jesus? Will you, will you create space in our lives, in our busy lives, that are full of noise, to be silent and still before you, the God of all, all creation? And in those moments and spaces, will you reorient our hearts and our desires to you? Will you set our framework of time in a bigger picture, in the picture of your kingdom? And will you give us the ability to rest in that, to take a deep breath, to know that we are held in your hands and it's going to be okay because you know us and we are yours. Speak those words over us, Jesus, this day and this time. In your name we pray, amen.